0: it all love that sin left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow those are those are beautiful words as we continue on in the book of john we, we are seeing that the essence of that message over and over again extended by the lord jesus that we are sinners we need a savior and anyone who is thirsty for God can come. So turning your Bibles to John chapter 7. <clears throat> we'll continue in John chapter 7 today. And John 7 will end in a similar manner as chapter 4 began. If you remember back in chapter 4. With an invitation for those that have a thirsty soul for God to come. Come to Jesus and drink of his living water. This, this passage in the, in the book of John, you know, four through seven here has really become one of my, my rocks in my life for the last year as we've gone through it. And especially as I've been preaching through it this year. And I pray that it becomes in your heart the comfort and peace that has become in my heart with all the many struggles of life that we face in these days. John the author, John the apostle, John the disciple who wrote these words through the power of the Holy Spirit, he wants us to read these words of God and have our souls awakened to thirst for salvation. He understands and declares that whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We read about that in John chapter three. Over and over again, we're given the invitation to come to Jesus, believe in him, And have eternal life in his name. In the scene with the woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus says to her, if you remember, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She is there at the well. She is thirsty. She's looking for physical water to quench her physical thirst. And Jesus he pivots on her he, he starts he moves the conversation to the spiritual he's offering her living water of salvation through faith in him that will satisfy truly satisfy forever her thirsty soul And you remember her response she believes in him and she goes and tells the town and and many in the town believe in him also through her witness and then they come and talk to Jesus personally and believe and they're saved and Great salvation came to that town through faith in Christ. They respond to his invitation Come, all you who are thirsty, and drink from the living water of God. Now, here in chapter 7, we have a similar invitation given by Jesus to the Jews in Jerusalem. Last week, we saw Jesus go from Galilee. To Jerusalem to observe the Feast of Booths. And it's in this observance of the feast that his invitation is most striking and most powerful. So I want to give us some understanding of the Feast of Booths this morning so that we can feel the impact of Jesus' invitation even more powerfully. So before we get into our text in detail, I want to talk about the Feast of Booths. You know, what is this Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles? Why did Jesus go up to the Feast in Jerusalem? Well, the Feast of Booths, it has several names, Tabernacles, Booths. In the Hebrew, it's called Sukkot. It's prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23 and in Deuteronomy chapter 16. It was one of the three feasts that all males in Israel were required to attend. And it's the third and final biblical fall feast. It's a harvest feast of celebration and great rejoicing. For for seven days they do this, and then there's a a solemn day at the end on the eighth day. Seven days of continual joyous celebration, followed by a solemn assembly on the very last day of the feast. It's the culmination of all the feasts. God's redemptive calendar. So it's a big deal. Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He's there in the temple teaching during the feast. All of Israel was to live in booths each year. So there were these like makeshift kind of tents. If you look this up, uh, you'll see them. They're kind of funny looking. You know, they look kind of like sheds with branches and stuff over them and some of them are tents and some of them these makeshift kind of sheds and they would build them on the tops of their houses or in their you know on their property somewhere and instead of sleeping in their dwelling places in those times they'd go and they'd actually like live in in these booths and these little tents it was like a week-long camp out you know <clears throat> kind of a, week, a week-long camp out and they'd celebrate the feasts and live in these booths And this was to remind them of the wilderness journey from Egypt to the promised land, that they lived in tents. They were sojourners. They didn't have like, you know, brick and mortar dwelling places to live. They were wandering in the wilderness. And it was to remind them of that wandering in the wilderness and remind them of God's wonderful provision for their lives during that whole time so it's also a harvest festival for them a harvest feast reminding them of these things that had happened in god's provision both of these ideas they they prophetically point to the end time harvest in gathering of the lord many customs developed over time associated with celebrating the feast beyond what was prescribed specifically in leviticus and deuteronomy and one such custom is, is, is important to our text today, and it really connects what's happening here in Jesus's invitation. It was the custom of, of the temple water pouring ceremony. Each day during the, fea- the feast, uh, a priest proceeded from the temple down to the pool of Siloam carrying a golden pitcher. So you have this golden pitcher would be a big, a big deal, like a you know, parade, and they'd He'd go walking down to the pool of Siloam with the golden pitcher and fill it up. And he was followed by pilgrims that had come to Jerusalem. Thousands upon thousands of pilgrims came to Jerusalem to observe the feast. And they would wave these palm branches behind the priest with the golden pitcher. And they'd be waving these branches. And it was quite a scene. I watched it on YouTube last week. I'm just kidding. So you got to imagine in your mind what's happening. It was quite a scene. The priests would fill the golden pitcher with water from the pool and return to the temple, followed by the crowds. And they'd be chanting from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 12. We will gather water from the wells of salvation. They'd be chanting Bible verses from Isaiah. They'd be chanting Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save now. Good Bible tribute for you guys. Hosanna and save now. Save us now, God. And so there'd be all these these chanting and celebrations for the salvation of God to come. And the priest would take that golden pitcher and he'd make a circuit around the altar. So he'd be like, (laughs) holding up the pitcher, go around the altar. The altar is a lot bigger than our pulpit here. And he'd go around and then he'd take that pitcher and he'd pour it out. Pour it out. And each day he would do that. Take that pit and go get the water, come back, go around the altar, pour it out every day. Pour out the water for God to provide what only God alone could give. You Do it for the six days of the festival. But on the seventh day of the feast, it would be different. The seventh day was different. The seventh day was considered the great day of the feast because the eighth day was a solemn assembly without any of the joyous celebration of the previous seven festival days. The seventh day was called the Great Hosanna. And on the seventh day, the priest would go to the pool with his golden pitcher, followed by the praising and worshiping crowds. He would return to the temple as before, but now the priest would circle the altar seven times. And I'm not gonna do that, I might start breathing hard if I do that. He'd go around the altar seven times. Seven times around the altar on the seventh day. And with each circuit, the crowds would grow louder and louder in their cry for the provision and salvation of God. Now, also as part of this, there were large 75 foot high candlesticks that were erected. So imagine 75 feet tall, huge, large 75 foot candlesticks. And they would light these candlesticks, and the wicks of the candlesticks would be made from the garments of the priests. And they would provide light to the whole temple area. So you have this outpouring of the water. You have this light that's illuminating the whole temple on these huge candlesticks. They'd have to climb up these big ladders to to light them I get scared, like, climbing up two stories, story and a half on the ladder. Like, ah, 75 feet, that's huge. So there was this huge celebration, and it was just beautiful. And there'd be dancing and singing and praising the Lord with harps, like Psalm 150, stringed instruments, cymbals, trumpets. It was a big party, a great celebration. And this would continue for the full seven days. And then on the eighth day, the lights were extinguished for a holy and solemn assembly. Now, for the first century worshiper in Jerusalem, The Feast of booze had special meaning. So I want us to, to, to try to understand this more in our minds, because then the invitation of Jesus is going to have a bigger impact on our hearts and souls. Understand this in our minds. So there's this great celebration. They're crying out for the salvation of God. And they would also be looking forward to the future. They would know the words of Zechariah 14. Fourteen sixteen, which says, "Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. If any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and pre- present themselves, then on them there should be no rain." There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. So when King Jesus reigns in his millennial kingdom upon his glorious throne in Jerusalem, we will all be celebrating the Feast of Booths. The whole world. For those who do not celebrate the feast, no water will be provided. And it would be evidence of their denial of the king's righteous reign and resistance to his universal authority. So that's serious business. So a first century Jewish worshiper here at this feast of booze would associate the feast with Messiah King's coming and reigning and establishing his kingdom. It anticipated the king's glorious reign, not over Israel, but over all the nations. The feast would also bring to mind these words of Ezekiel, chapter 37, 26. I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever, forever, forevermore. The king will reign from Jerusalem and in the restored kingdom of Israel. God will dwell with his people. No longer would the Romans or any other nation place Israel under their heel. Instead, They would all have to acknowledge the Lord as God and Israel as his people. So the feast pictured a greater harvest of all the nations and the Lord reigning as king over all. And then there's the symbolism of the pouring out of the water. Why is that important? What does that have to do with me? The pouring out of the water at the feast picture is one of the most anticipated aspects of the kingdom of God as found in the prophets. The pouring out of God's spirit on his people. Isaiah 44.3 says, I will pour water on the thirsty land, streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Have any, has anyone ever been to the desert? like Arizona, you know, out west, yeah, yeah. For those who have been to the desert, some have lived in the desert. (laughs) These words hit a little bit harder than for those of us here on the East Coast who like have hurricanes and rain and like sometimes we just wish it would stop raining. But when you've lived in the desert, in this area where the Israelites live, when they say wilderness, they're talking about desert. They're not talking about the woods out here (laughs) with trees and shade and all that stuff. No, they're talking about heat, oppressive heat and dryness. Like you put lotion on all day long and it's like, man, my skin's still flaky. Ugh, ah, it is dry and you're thirsty. And your your tongue cleaves to your the roof of your mouth, and you're just you just it, it's you're thirsty. And so these words, it says, I'll pour water on the thirsty land. You can imagine the thirsty land, it's all dried and cracked. You know, like the mud cracks there in the desert. So much so that when the water is poured on it, it, sometimes it just runs off real fast because it just has to soak in and it's just, it's hard. So those words of Isaiah would ring in their minds and they see the water of the pitcher poured out. Words of Ezekiel 39 saying, I will not hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit. Upon the house of Israel declares the Lord God, so they're anticipating an outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts. In these days, the Holy Spirit of God had not been given. Oftentimes, we believers today we take for granted the Holy Spirit of God in our lives. We know that when we believe in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes and lives in our hearts, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to go to Jerusalem and see the (laughs) temple and worship there. We have the Holy Spirit in our hearts. We often take that for granted. In these days, that did not, that did not happen. God had not poured out his spirit yet. And so they longed for it. Zechariah 12 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and please for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a a firstborn. So John sees Jesus as inseparably linked to the fulfillment of the Feast of Booths. Jesus is the fulfillment of this feast. The feasts of Israel point to Messiah Jesus and he fulfills them so with that in mind now that we have that backdrop and context when we read john seven thirty-seven, on the last day of the feast the great day so now you've got that picture right jesus is there in the temple it's the last day of the feast the great day the the priest has done his circuit around the altar he's about to pour out that water jesus stood up and cried out if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He uses that opportune time. All the ceremonies of the feast reveal who he is. And now he's crying out in the temple to draw God's people to himself. As that priest is pouring out that water, praying for God's provision, and thousands upon thousands of people are crying out for the salvation of God, Jesus proclaims those beautiful words. And what he's saying here is really the essence of the gospel message in a very single, short sentence. And three words really stand out. Thirst. Come and drink. Thirst. First, let's look at thirst. Thirst recognizes a need. Thirst is like hunger. It's something we're acutely conscious of. It's a craving for what we don't have. There is a soul thirst as well as a body thirst. Now what's tragic is that most of us thirst for the things that can never satisfy our souls. We've been discussing this as we walk through these verses. We thirst for things that will never truly satisfy Our souls, things like pleasure or money or fame or approval, comfort, self indulgence, health, and on and on the list can go. All the worldly things you can even imagine. Whoever drinks of those things will thirst again. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, the richest, most wise man ever to walk the whole planet. And everything and more you could ever imagine, more money than Elon Musk and Bill Gates and all those guys, they're cheap, poor people compared to what Solomon had. I'm not exaggerating either. It's all vanity. It all leaves you thirsty for more. Nothing of this world will satisfy. It's all vanity of vanity. All is vanity. It's like chasing the wind. He'll never grab hold of it. <coughs> only Jesus can satisfy the thirsty soul. Soul thirst is an intense longing in our hearts put there by God that only Jesus can satisfy. When a poor sinner is convicted of his polluted heart and wants to be cleansed, if he is weighted down with all the awful burden of conscious guilt and desires forgiveness, if he's fully aware of his weakness and longs for strength and deliverance, if he's filled with fears and distrust and craves for peace and rest, then, says Jesus, let him come to me and drink and have his thirsty soul be satisfied. There's a thirst in our souls. And I hear it in people. I see it in people. they like, how can I have peace? How can I have this peace that you have? How? Well, that's the next word. You come. You come. Come is one of the simplest words in the English language. It expresses action. To come to Christ means that you do with your heart and will what you would do with your feet if he were standing in bodily form right here in this room saying come to me it's an act of faith it implies that you have turned your back upon the world and you have abandoned all confidence in everything about yourself and and now you're casting yourself empty-handed as brother chris was saying before Empty-handed at the feet of grace and truth. You come to Christ and none other. Not the church. Not to baptism. Not to the Lord's Supper or any other substitute. You come to Christ alone. Broken, empty, thirsty. You come. And then the next word, drink. And this is where so, so many seem to fail. And it, and it breaks my heart because I can share the truth with them over and over and over again, but I cannot make them drink. You've heard the expression all over, the, all the time, right? You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. <laughs> You know, I can share the gospel with someone a thousand times over, present it as clearly as can possibly be said. They can read the words of this amazing love story of God, time and again, every single day. They still have to drink. There are so many who give evidence of an awakened conscience, of a need for Christ. There are numbers who appear to be seeking him, yet they stop short. You not only need to come, you also need to drink. You know, as an analogy, you know, a river flowing through a country where people are dying of thirst helps no one if they're not willing to drink from it. So, Christ saves no one who will not receive him by faith. So, drinking here, it's a figurative expression. It signifies making Christ your own. In all ages, God's saints are those who saw their deep need, who came to the Lord Jesus and take his provision of grace. Now, notice where Jesus is in this text he is in the temple saying these things now think about who's in the temple on the feast day this this part kind of really blows my mind when i'm when i read this as compared to the scene with the woman at the well now here's this adulterous sinful woman who's many husbands and jesus shouldn't be talking to her invitation is given she believes Jesus is in the temple on the great day of the feast. it would be like Jesus showing up at the Southern Baptist Convention <laughs> or the one of the, a great meeting of the Catholic leadership at the Vatican I mean these people at the feast these are the religious leaders these are the, the scribes the Pharisees you know the people that you know, really cared about serving God, they've made the effort to go to the feast in Jerusalem. They're the religious leaders of Judaism. And he's standing in the temple crying out. He doesn't assume at all that they know the gospel. He could have easily assumed, oh, they're they're past that. We need a seminar on good doctrine. We need a seminar on this, you know. We got to get to the higher things. Stands up in the temple. If anyone's thirsty. I come to me and drink. Simple gospel message. He assumes that they, he assumes they know nothing. Actually, he knows. He doesn't have to assume. He knows who are his and who are not. And he knows they need the gospel. So. We also should not assume the gospel or take it for granted. We should preach it always, to all of creation, especially in the church. Let us never take the gospel of Christ for granted, brothers and sisters. And I hope you don't get tired of hearing it every Sunday here, because we all preach it. Every single week at this church, it's our heart's desire to preach the gospel. So here in this moment, Jesus declared himself to be the fulfillment of the promise of God for Israel and the world. The true hope for the Feast of Booths. So I ask you now, are you feeling spiritually dry? Cry out to Jesus and be satisfied by his grace and love. Maybe you came to him years ago. But today... You just feel dried up in your soul. Maybe you're suffering through a terrible time of suffering. Just feel dried up in your soul. Cry out to Jesus. Feel the rivers of living water flowing out of your heart. Cry out to Jesus. Now, in the text, the word come and drink, those, if you look in the Greek, those are present tense verbs. What that means is that it's not just a one-time thing that you did or will do. It's something you keep doing continually. We are to keep coming to him. We are to keep drinking from him. The circumstances we go through are often more than enough to dry us out spiritually, and they leave us feeling like a desert in our souls. And so we're to keep coming to Jesus, keep trusting in him, keep relying upon him for the grace that he alone can provide, which is sufficient for all of our wilderness sufferings. Jesus promises that those who come to him will have rivers of living waters flowing from their hearts. So brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you, we we keep coming to Jesus. We keep drinking moment by moment throughout each day of our lives. In in the, the times of joy and in the times of suffering in our souls, we keep coming to jesus we keep crying out to jesus and he hears the cry of the broken and he cares and he works through the prayers of his people and he pours out his living water in our souls enough so that it fills us and then it flows out to others And here in this invitation, Jesus is referring to Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. He's declaring Isaiah 58, 11, The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. And make your bones strong. You shall be like a watered garden. Like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. No matter how dry your spirit feels. No matter how long your spiritual drought has been going on. Jesus promises that there will not only be enough of his all sufficient grace grace for your life. But for the lives of those around you as well. Rivers of living water flowing to you and through you into others. And so we're not to be like buckets. You know, buckets fill up and they don't, you've got to pour them out. We're not supposed to be like buckets with the living water of God, just filling us up all the time and nothing ever coming out. We're not supposed to be like just sponges soaking it all up all the time. We're supposed to be more like a pipe that it flows through our hearts and into the lives of others. Who are you sharing the living water of Jesus with? Don't be like the Dead Sea. Look at the map. You'll see. That Jordan River flows into that dead sea, and that that sea is dead because nothing flows out of it. It just fills up, and all the minerals deposit there, and because of that, nothing can live. Life comes through the outflowing. And so oftentimes, you know, in our times of greatest struggle and suffering, if we will get outside of ourselves and go and serve in humility and love others who are suffering also, God blesses us more than it blesses even them. So often we're we're just focused on ourselves and our own problems and our own difficulties and we're crying out to God and God is is helping us. But still, we still feel like depressed or down or downtrodden. And I found in my own life those times when I get outside of myself and go and share the, the love of Christ with others through service, helping them in their times of need, My problems just seemed to fade away. I I was so personally blessed helping those refugees that were here with us for about a month. It seemed like all the the problems that I had in the forefront of my mind just kind of faded back in the light of the suffering they were going through, in the light of the great loss they had experienced. And and now they've moved to Chapel Hill, and I'm sad. (laughs) I don't get to see them. It blessed my soul to take him to the grocery store. So I want to encourage us, brothers and sisters. The rivers are supposed to flow in and out. Let's, let's get our heads up and our ears open and our eyes open to be sensitive to the needs of others and how we can serve and love others in our community. There are needs all around us. If we'll, if we'll just be attentive to them, be, be aware of them, be asking even about these things the opportunities are there for these living waters to flow through us now verse 39 he said this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive for as yet the spirit had not been given because jesus was not yet glorified and so i love I love the book of John. I love the Bible. You know, when you're asking a question, how is it that I do this? How do I, how do I come? How do I drink? What is he talking about? What does that even mean? Well, it's the Holy Spirit of God. He clarifies it right here. He's talking about Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father and the subsequent outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. You can read about that in Acts chapter 2. We experience these rivers of living water in our spirit through the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and pouring out into others. You receive Christ in salvation once for all, but you feed on him and you drink from him constantly, daily as the food and drink of your soul through the Holy Spirit of God in your life and in your heart. Now, what does that mean? That seems kind of abstract. What does that mean? Well, it looks something like this. I don't know if I got the exact words to exactly describe it, but it looks something like this. Through confessing your sins, you know, the Holy Spirit comes into our heart, and it's like this huge mega spotlight, like the bat light. You know, they shine up on Gotham when there's crime. They shine the bat light up there, and it's like one of those searchlights. You don't see those much anymore, but I did when I was a kid. You know, they shine them all around. You know, we don't see them anymore. But it's like one of those huge lights that's shining in on my heart, the Holy Spirit showing me what a dirty, rotten, nasty person I am with all the sin in there. Like, oh, it's nasty in there. And so I, I can't stand that. Like, I don't want it there. God, clean that out. Make it white as snow. Sin leaves that crimson stain in there, but Jesus washes it white as snow. And so Jesus washed that white as snow I confess my sins. I'm a sinner, God. Save me. Help me. Help me turn from that sin and turn to you, Lord Jesus, and walk in righteousness. So it starts with us confessing our sins. Praying. Reading God's word regularly, frequently. Hungry for more. It's through the filling of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we turn away from the deeds of the flesh. You've got to turn away from those things. You're not walking in the Spirit of God if you are following out the, deals, uh, the deeds of the flesh. Things like that are listed in Galatians 5. You know, it's the first place I turned when I saw this about being in the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. It's Galatians 5. The deeds of the flesh are things like sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. So those are things that are personal. Sometimes you might think, well, that's not a big deal. Nobody's getting hurt. You're still in the flesh. Those are sin. They leave a crimson stain all over your heart. Then he moves on to to interpersonal difficulties, enmity, strife, jealousy fits of anger rivalries dissensions divisions envy drunkenness orgies and things like these i warn you as i warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of god i'm not going to sugarcoat that church we we got to turn away from those things that ought not to be even named among anyone in this room Turn from those things. Put off that old self like a dirty, filthy garment. Take it off. Throw it in the trash and burn it. That's the old sinful self. has no place in this this heart of mine. Then you be filled with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness self-control there are no laws anywhere against those things so do you want to know hey am i am i walking in the flesh or am i walking in the spirit what does your life look like what's the fruit of your life look like right now am i given over to anger and outbursts of anger am i given over to sexual immorality or impurity Am I giving over to lying or any of these other things? Am I making a practice of those things in my life? Or do I have the love, joy, and peace, and all the fruit of God's spirit in my life, ending with self-control? If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become proud, provoking one another, envy. So the invitation is here for all who are thirsty. Come and drink. Just as Jesus gave that invitation in the temple, I give that invitation to you right now in this place. And I understand there will be various responses to this invitation, just as there were in John chapter 7. If you look at verse 40. And as we read these words, I want you to examine your own heart and ask yourself, Which one of these am I like? When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, excited, here he is. Woo-hoo, Jesus, yeah, this is him, it's the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, even greater, he's here, this is amazing. But some said, the Christ to come from Galilee? Isn't he supposed to come from, hasn't the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Hey, these guys know their Bible. They know their Bible. They don't know Jesus, though. that's where he did come from. So what happens? Look at verse 43. As it often happens, right? There's a division among the people over him. Oh, now they're fighting. They're fighting. There's a division. Some of them wanted to arrest him. <clears throat> so you have some, this is Messiah. Others, put him in chains. But no one laid hands on him. That's the usual response from a crowd when the gospel is preached. And just like in this situation, if I were to go and preach this message, give this invitation today in many parts of the world, they would be saying the same thing to me, only they wouldn't be saying I was Messiah. They'd say, hey, arrest that man. Put him in jail. He can't preach like that. Put him in jail seems that uh, they, that day they is not far off in our own country, and I won't be surprised when it's here. Now, I, I thought it was amazing that these people could quote prophecy and yet not see it fulfilled standing right in front of them. <laughs> Jesus, Messiah, is standing right in front of them, but they don't know him. So it reminds me that all of our knowledge is worthless and vain if it's not joined with saving grace in our hearts. There are many people who can quote the scriptures very accurately, just like these in the crowd, but they have not been born again. You must be born again to be saved. You must believe. And then we'll close with uh, the last verses here, starting at 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? They're mad. You're supposed to go get him. Why are you coming back without him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? This crowd that does not know the law is accursed. (coughs) Now, this is an interesting statement of Nicodemus. He's getting a little more brave here. And he's a Pharisee the leader of the Pharisees, who had gone, the teacher, I should say, we met him in chapter 3, he had gone to him before, and who was one of them, he says to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied to him, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, I love the officer's response to the Pharisees. No one ever spoke like this man. <laughs> like,
1: we wanted to go arrest him, but man, you should have heard what he
0: said. No one ever talked like this guy before. We just couldn't do it. <clears throat> the overwhelming power of the word of God stops even those intending to arrest Jesus. They just stop. I like, don't oh, know. We can't do that. His words, Jesus' words, are spirit and life. And so, what, are you, what is your response to his words today? Have his words come to you with a force that none others ever did? You hear his words and say, Man, no one ever talked like that. Those words are precious treasure to me. Have they pierced you through to the dividing of your soul and spirit? Have they brought life to your soul, joy to your heart, rest to your conscience, and peace to your mind? Or are you holding back from trusting Jesus because those who you consider respectable, they reject him. Like those respectable Pharisees. You know, we want to fit in, don't we? We want to go with the crowd. We don't want to cause waves so you know we go along with those who are in authority and power even when their teachings are wrong oftentimes we'll go along with it because we're afraid mostly just like those officers just like that crowd as if any of the other pharisees believe that you shouldn't believe too and you're really dumb if you do and you're you're messed up you know and we 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 fall to that sadly we do and i'm saying don't fall to that stand firm in your belief and in your faith The Pharisees said, This this crowd's accursed. Ironically, the Pharisees who were the ones who were accursed, they were the ones called whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers. But one of them believed, Nicodemus. You can see faith awakening in his heart. He wasn't yet totally defending Jesus openly, but he was no longer one of his enemies. And as I read that text, I was reminded too that sometimes the work of grace proceeds slowly in some of our hearts. While with others, it acts more quickly. And so again, what about you? And I'll close with this verse from Revelation 22. Come, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price.